Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. She is an award-winning professor of English at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, where I had the privilege of meeting her last fall when I was there for a conference. We had a conversation together over lunch, and it was wonderful to get to know her a little bit. She's a person I've long admired. Her work is well-known to people who uh, care about the issues of the day and the deep things of faith. She's a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, she's a senior fellow with the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement at Liberty, a senior with the Trinity Forum, and something I found very interesting, a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. So, um, Karen, you have covered a lot of bases in your life and interest, and welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Now, before we get going, you've got to say a word about the Humane Society. Uh, I don't think I've ever met anybody who was a member of the Council of the Humane Society. What's your interest there and what do you do? Yeah, well, one of the biggest secrets in evangelicalism is the fact that um, our forebears actually founded the first society uh, for cruelty against cruelty to animals. William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade in England, also helped found that first society. And so care and concern and good stewardship of animals is um, is part of evangelicalism's history. And so when I discovered that in working on my, my doctoral dissertation, I just... Um, Became, became passionate about the issue and, and serve on the um, Faith Advisory Council for this organization, which is a secular organization, but I'm thankful to, that um, they actually want to hear from people of faith, and it's a way for us to have influence in that realm. Yeah. You, you mentioned your doctoral dissertation. That was done at the State University of New York in Buffalo. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you did, your dissertation, your research there. Yes, well, my area of expertise is 18th and 19th century English literature and uh, particularly the English novel, which developed during that time. And as I was researching that, I stumbled across one of William Wilberforce's best friends who's been long forgotten by history, and her name is Hannah Moore. Um, she was a poet and a dramatist and wrote one novel, and I did my research on that novel, and of course, in doing that, learned so much about not just her life, but the life of those late 18th and early 19th century evangelicals who were so influential in so many areas, including the abolition of Yeah, And that's led you into more research on literature and writing and how that relates to the Christian faith, uh, to the life of the church. And we're going to talk about your brand new book on reading well, which is released uh, today by Brazos Press. So if you're listening, run to your telephone or your Internet and get on reading well. It's just brand new. But before we get to our discussion today, maybe we could start by having you say a little bit about your first book, which is titled, interestingly, Booked, The Literature in the Soul of Me. What an interesting title. What were you doing there? Yeah, 
well, it's similar to my new book in talking about different works of literature, but it's much more personal. It's really my spiritual journey. I grew up in a Christian home, accepted Christ as Lord and Savior at a very young age, and grew up going to church and teaching Sunday school. I mean, I was teaching Sunday school almost as soon as I was going to Sunday school. But I somehow just got the message that worldly things, including literature, were not compatible with the things of the Lord, that the life of the mind was not compatible with the life in the church. And so I, for a long time, felt like I loved books more than I loved God, and I felt like I had to choose between them. And it wasn't until I got into grad school in a very secular, liberal, humanistic program where I actually and through the help of one of my very secular professors who pointed out to me the connection between Christianity and words and language, and everything began to come together for me. And so this first book that I wrote is kind of that, is the story of that journey of how my love of books and literature led me to a greater and deeper and lasting love of God and the things of God. That's wonderful. Now, in, in this new book, you, you you make a distinction. You use two terms. I want to ask you to explain a little bit each of them because they're provocative. One is reading promiscuously, and the other one is reading virtuously. What do you mean by those terms? <laughs> well, the, the first one, reading promiscuously, I do talk about a great deal in my first book, book to literature in the soul of me, and it actually is a phrase that I borrow from the 17th century Puritan John Milton, who argued in a famous treatise against censorship. I mean, he was actually, he was a Puritan, and the Puritans had just come out from under the thumb of the court who was censoring them, and the Puritans were now that they were in charge, wanted to censor their opposition, and Milton makes a very theological and Christian argument for what he calls promiscuous reading, reading reading a mixture of things. That's actually what the word originally means, is to mix, to mix up and to read widely, to read truth, to read error, and to weigh the two, and to learn through that what real truth is. He even goes so far as to say that if we actually just believe something because our pastor tells us to believe it, and we don't know why, and we don't really understand it, that that actually becomes a heresy to us. Um, because we have to understand and reason and argue things out in order to not only know what truth is, but to claim it for ourselves. And so he uses that term, and that's the term I describe how I grew up reading, just reading everything, reading good books and bad books and maybe books I shouldn't have, but through that sort of dialectical process came to understand truth and and how, you know, to understand really a biblical worldview and how we can weigh any words out there, any works of literature against the Word of God and know truth better. You know, that sort of reminds me of the story of Thomas Wolfe, the novelist who went to Harvard as a student, and he determined to read through the entire depository of Widener Library, one of the largest libraries in the world, starting with the letter A. And go. I don't think he ever got to B. There were so many. But his point was, yeah, I'm just going to read everything. I'm not going to discriminate, uh, not just books I like or famous, but everything uh, starting alphabetically. That may not be the best way to do it, but you've, <laughs> you've made a case here that reading widely, reading promiscuously, mixing and matching and delving into new and different and strange things might be a, a worthy activity. I certainly think that it is, and of course it requires 
discernment on the part of the believer, but it actually helps us to exercise discernment, too. And that's what, what Milton argued. He argued that the difference between innocence and virtue, because he says innocence has never been exposed to evil, and so is is not the same thing as virtue, which he can choose between good and evil and chooses good instead of evil. That's what's virtuous. So reading virtuously is related to reading promiscuously, in your understanding. Exactly. And so with this new book, I kind of picked up on that idea because I, you know, I argue in, in the introduction um, that it's not enough to read widely, as I argue in my first book, one must also read well. So that's I'm, in this book, I'm kind of taking the next step and saying, let's read widely, but also let's read well or read virtuously. And we're going to get into a discussion of the structure of your book, which is fascinating in itself. Uh, but before we do that, you have another point in that introduction about reading as an aesthetic experience. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, um, you know, especially as as Christians, I think um, evangelicals, conservatives, we focus a lot on content. We focus on whether an idea is true or false or biblical or not biblical. We often view movies the same way. What ideas does it convey? And and that's important. But really, what's even more important than what something says is how it is said. And so literary reading is, you know, it's reading writing that focuses on the art of words and how words are used. Uh, and, and we are trained less and less in our culture today to pay attention to the aesthetic experience. And we are losing the culture because of that, because the culture does this very, very well. It understands that when we read a work or watch a movie or listen to a song, there's a feel that goes along with it that reaches us in a heart place that is prior to um, and affects us before our conscious, rational, reasoning mind does. And it can get us in a way um, that we don't even consciously articulate or reason out. And so we really need to pay attention to the way that reading and, and all works of art um, and cultural artifacts are part of an aesthetic experience. And uh, we can't help it. We are we are aesthetic creatures, and we do respond to the feel and the sense of things. And uh, if, we, if we ignore that, it's to our peril. Now, your new book on reading well is divided into three parts in which you match up in each distinct chapter one of the virtues, as we talk about them, along with a particular uh, literary work, often a masterpiece or one that's very well known anyway. And the way you categorize the virtues, you begin with the four cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, courage, and then the three theological virtues, all of which are mentioned in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And then the heavenly virtues, which are maybe not as well known as the first uh, seven we've mentioned, chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, humility. Now, we don't have time to go through each one of these in any depth, but I do want to ask you about the virtues themselves, how you think about these virtues. Are they important for us to know and to learn? Uh, Where do they come from? What is virtue ethics? All of this is swirling around uh, this very interesting book you've written. 
Well, and I, I have to be completely candid and say that, you know, I'm, I'm an English professor. I teach literature and writing, and I'm not a theologian or a philosopher. And so in writing this book, I actually had to research it. I've always been fascinated with the virtues, but have not really known a lot about them. I think especially within Protestantism and even more so in evangelicalism, we don't talk about them a lot. There's much more to be found among um, the early church fathers and the Catholic theologians and philosophers than among um, our tribe. And so there is actually a very long history of the classical virtues, both within the church and also within Greek philosophy. Um, and there, there isn't any necessary agreement on one list. There are lots of different lists, although the cardinal virtues, those first four that you mentioned, prudence, temperance, justice, and courage, are pretty well agreed upon. Um, but there's just a long and rich history of these virtues that, that I had to research, and I actually like research more than writing, so um, it, took, it took me a long time to write this book because I could have just stayed in the research stage for a long time. Um, so there's a long, rich tradition that I've just I've just really scratched the surface of in this book, and, and, and part of doing that was figuring out which virtues to focus on and how to structure the book and how to find works that exemplified them well. It was, it really was at times like a, a like a puzzle, but um, it, I think I, I hope I made some sense out of it in the end. At least it made some sense to me the way that I structured it and put these works yeah. with the virtues. It's very well written and very compelling. I mean, you make the argument when you begin reading about these virtues and how they match up with these particular works of literature, uh, there's a kind of light bulb that goes off. Well, that's right, but not necessarily something I would have thought about uh, necessarily before. So let's dive into a couple of these virtues and see uh, why you chose the books you did and what what we have to learn from them. One of the most uh, famous books, I suppose, uh, of English literature of your period of study is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, which you say exemplifies in a certain way justice. What's going on there? Yes, of course. Dickens was an easy choice for me because I do love Charles Dickens. Mm, me um, too. He's one of my favorite novelists. He's just a delight. And so I, you know, I, I, and one point I want to make before talking about that is I really wrote this entire book geared toward two audiences, which is hard to do. Well, more than two, but in terms of the works of literature, I really hope that people who've already read these works and who love these works will find my analysis of them interesting and compelling, even though they know the works. But I also wrote it for people who might not be familiar with the works. I, I, you know, I tried not to give everything away, but write about what, you know, I didn't cover everything that happened in any of these books, but I hope that people who aren't as familiar with them will be interested to read them for themselves. And so A Tale of Two Cities is, is one of those works that will be familiar to many readers, but maybe they haven't read since high school or don't remember all the details. It's one of Dickens' most famous works, one of his most controversial ones in terms of whether it's considered you know, his best or worst. But to be honest, this was actually the hardest chapter for me to write because the virtue of justice is very, very difficult. Because all of the other virtues are in, have to do with the individual. They have to do with individual character, like being courageous or kind or humble. But justice to just define it very simply, is the morality of the community. It has to do with the society, the city, the polis, the culture, giving to each one what is due to each one. And so it's a very, you know, I mean, I think we have a lot of 
contemporary conversations going on right now about justice and what constitutes justice. It's a very difficult philosophical and political concept. And so it was challenging for me to write, but the thing that really I found compelling about A Tale of Two Cities is it, you know, as the title suggests, The Tale of Two Cities, the cities being London and Paris. And what Dickens was very concerned in the 19th century, London, as, that he was living in, about the excessive injustices that he saw, you know, ones that we're familiar with, even just from seeing film versions of A Christmas Carol or Oliver Twist. We know the world that Dickens lived in. He saw those excessive injustices, and he feared that they paralleled the injustices of the previous century in France that led to the bloody, horrific, terrible French Revolution and uh, and and the excesses of that and beyond. And so I tried to write this chapter in a way where we could see today how excessive injustice or injustice denied and not taken care of will lead to further violence and injustice. It's just a fact of human nature and human society, and we can learn so much about the injustices of the past to help correct correct the injustices that we might be dealing with today. And that's how I try to address that topic. And it was, you know, it's very hard. Justice is a very difficult and complex topic. One of the things you point out, uh, maybe you could comment a little bit, is the way in which we use the words just and fair. We often use those almost as synonyms, and yet there's a different uh, meaning in a way behind the two. Yes. Um, one of, you know, we, we, we talk about things being fair or unfair and there's an interesting etymological connection uh, between the, the word fair, meaning justice, and the word fair, meaning beauty. Um, and beauty is a form of fairness and sort of a fair, a form of justice. Um, if you think of, you know, you're hanging a painting on the wall and you want the corners to be just or fair or correct so it will look right and be in proportion and symmetry, there's lots of interesting philosophical connections there. So there's something about justice that is sort of square and fair and proportionate, but then there's something about fairness and the sense of beauty that can often go beyond that. And so I I make the connection in um, this chapter about how um, Sidney Carton's self-sacrifice at the end of the novel, for anyone who remembers it, you know what that is, Mm. um, it's not just because he was innocent, Mm. but it exceeds justice in the sense of being fair and beautiful because his giving up his life for the sake of others um, is the kind of love that the Bible talks about, the kind of love that is exemplified in Christ's sacrifice for us. And it is something that is fair in the sense of being beautiful. Yeah. Moving from the cardinal virtues to the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, I want you to comment about your chapter on love, and you used as an example of that Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich. Now, let me tell you before you comment on that, this, I thought, in some ways, was the saddest chapter in your book, even though it's on love, and uh, there, there's hope in it, um, but it was a very sad telling of that story. Well, you know, that that's a point that might be made about literature and, and my own taste in literature is that often literature 
gives us negative examples of things. And so many of the works I hear give here, they present someone who perhaps doesn't have the virtue we're talking about. And so offers an example through negative. Now, Ivan does discover love at the end of the story, but it's, uh, you know, most of it is about how he did not have it through his life. And so it is a very um, sad and powerful story. And it, this is actually probably one of my favorite chapters. So, um because I love the I love the story and and I just love what it teaches about love, um, which is not you know it's it's not the I'm not talking about romantic love in this chapter I'm talking about agape love or charity which is you know the kind of brotherly love that we should have for one another um, and it's a theological virtue along with faith and hope um, which are different from the ones discussed in by the Greek philosophers, because the theological virtues are considered supernatural, not natural, meaning that we really can't have the faith or the hope or the love that's talked about in the Bible unless we are you know, redeemed, we are in Christ. That's where those true virtues come from. But we can practice them. Even Once we have them from the Lord, we can cultivate and practice them intentionally and purposefully and and try to um, increase those habits in our lives. Um, And I don't know, what else do you want me to say about this this story and this virtue? There's so much (laughs) to say. Yeah, well, one of the figures in the background of this virtue, really of all the virtues, I suppose, is St. Augustine. You quote him in this chapter about the, the true purpose and meaning of life and how God is to be loved and everything else to, is to be used in relation to God. Uh, it's really getting at the question of what we desire, isn't it? And, and what forms us as yeah. desiring creatures? Yes, I, I draw heavily on Augustine in this chapter and throughout the book because what he talks about so famously is how we have many different loves and, and objects of love and virtuous life ultimately is about ordering those loves in their proper place and proportion. And so I talk about this in this chapter um, because that is really what virtue is. It's habits, it's ordering desires, and love is actually, as Augustine says, the form of all the other virtues. We can think about all the other virtues as being sort of the content of our character, like we can be courageous and we can be humble and we can be patient and kind. But all of those things have to have the form of love or they are not virtuous. Because, you know, we could fake, I suppose, being kind or being patient or being humble, but if we aren't really doing it and it really isn't rooted in love, then it's not virtuous at all. And that's one of the things the Church Fathers say over and over, is that that none of these virtues can be separated from the other virtues. Um, If we try to act out any of the other virtues and, and say, apart from any, a good goal or a just goal, it's not virtuous. They're all connected, and the one that connects all of them is love, which, of course, the Bible teaches us. You know, if we don't have love, we are but a clanging symbol. Mm, it's a great chapter. It's about death, how to face death, which we all do and will do, but also how to tend to those who are facing death that are near to us and dear to us. Another experience that's common to all of human life. So there's a lot to learn from here. I think about how to be a human being, how to care for those in need who are with you, how to show love in the in the midst of death and fear. 
So it, it, it's, it's a compelling chapter, but one that uh, is not you, – you can't romanticize this. I mean, you, you know, it's life in, in its fullness. Now, the heavenly virtues, uh, again, there are five of these, uh, chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, humility. I have a question about humility, but first of all, say just a little bit about diligence because your example there is maybe the most famous book in Protestant Christian literature, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Yeah, that seems like a very obvious choice to talk about diligence, um, but it actually was one of the last pieces of the puzzle that I put together. I kept racking my brains. What what work can I talk about with diligence? <laughs> um, and then someone actually suggested Pilgrim's Progress to me, and then the light went on, of course. Um, and, you know, diligence, I think we all know what the word means, but in terms of being a virtue, it's interesting because one thing that most people don't realize about the virtues is every virtue is a mean or a moderation between two extremes, an extreme of excess or an extreme of deficiency. And I explain all that in the book with each of the virtues. And so diligence is actually the mean between too little and too much care, attention, and effort. So we think of diligent, I think we tend to think of it as always just you know, working hard and being attentive, which it is that, but it can also become a vice if we do it too much. And there are so many applications of that. We all know the expression like, you know, someone who's just trying too hard. Um, in a more Christian sense, I think we can, we can try too hard to do things ourselves and not let the Lord do things. And so each virtue is that exact medium, that excellent point in the middle between the two extremes. And so in Pilgrim's Progress, of course, great classic, um, there are just so many ways that, that Pilgrim, despite all of these obstacles and horrific tortures and deaths and trials, continues on his journey toward the celestial city. And so we know the story, I think most of us, but I try to in talking about that and diligence, draw some application just to real life and how, you know, even if our lives aren't as dramatic as uh, Christians are in the story, although sometimes they can be, we still are called to be diligent, even in the small things, especially in the small things. It's just like a muscle that needs to be exercised. And you bring this into connection to the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, a wonderful teaching, but one that's often misunderstood. We use this expression, once saved, always saved. You make a decision, and you never lose this wonderful gift of salvation. And, and yet perseverance shows this is a really, to borrow that metaphor again, a pilgrimage. It's a long process, twists and turns, ups and downs, vanity fair, all of this that John Bunyan's character Christian goes through on his way to the celestial right. city. We, we really need to persevere, and we do that through our diligence. Now, humility. We don't have time. You use Flannery O'Connor as the example of humility. But my question is, is humility really a virtue? I, I've had this argument, a friendly argument, with, with a good friend of mine who claims it is and has written about it. And yet it seems to me that humility is different from these other virtues in that once you begin to seek it, once you begin to cultivate it even, you've lost it. You know, you you're immediately uh, you become proud that you're humble. Uh, there's there's an irony here that we need to maybe take a little more into consideration. What do you think about that? Well, my goodness, I think we could have a whole show about that. <laughs> this one, so I'll try to keep it short. Well, I think because again, humility as a virtue 
is a mean between two accesses. And I think we always think of humility as kind of debasement and, and not being, you know, and being not, being not, uh, self-seeking or celebrating one's own work, but the virtue of humility is actually very simply it's accurate self-assessment, having a realistic and truthful view of who we are. And so that actually means that part of humility is being honest and not denying our strengths as well as our weaknesses. So someone who is too modest to understand what their strengths or gifts that God has given them to given them to exercise and to steward um, is actually not virtuously humble. It's just simply having a truthful assessment of who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, and that's the opposite of pride. And so I argue in this chapter that it's actually to be too modest and to be too self-effacing is actually the vice of pride. <laughs> and, you, and you do quote the Bible. I, I can't be against the Bible. You quote 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Professor Karen Swallow Pryor. She teaches English at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, author of a number of books and very outstanding uh, leader in the Lord's Church today. I uh, wish you well in all your good work, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.